0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, Mark chapter 10. All three Gospel accounts, those being Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels, they record the two events in our passage today in the same order and for the same reason to show the stark contrast between the rich young ruler and the children who were brought to Jesus. In Mark 10, verses 13 through 16, Jesus reiterates what he had said earlier, that those who would be saved must become like children in their humility and simple trust in Christ. He says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And then in the rest of the passage today, the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus provides what we know is a stark and sad contrast to the humility and simple trust that Jesus has talked about here at the beginning. There is another contrast in our passage today that will rock many of us, probably, to our very core. And that is the incredible difference that we see in the content and the way Jesus presents the gospel especially when we compare that to the content and the way much evangelism is thought of in our own day. The account of the rich young ruler is perhaps the best place in the Gospels to help us see how far off much evangelism is in our day. This is an exciting account because it helps us get back on track to think biblically about what the Gospel really is. But it's also tremendously sad because we're brought face-to-face with the enslaving power of sin. Now, today is actually the first part of this passage. I don't know what you have planned for next Sunday, but if you don't get next Sunday, it's not going to be complete. The encounter itself is what we're looking at today and the basic issues we'll get today but next week, in part two, we see many of the implications of what had just happened with the rich young ruler as, as usual, our quote-unquote hero disciple Peter asks some more questions on behalf of everybody else. Jesus explains further, and it's really, really a mind-blowing kind of response. So I'm going to read the whole passage today so we can get the whole context, and that's Mark 10, verses 13 through 31. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, and would you please stand, if you are able, as I read. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant or much displeased and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child... Shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And come, follow me. Disheartened by, what, by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There is a lot in this text. So, let's start off by just asking some basic observation kind of questions to let us see What's going on? What do we know about this man who comes up to Jesus? He's rich. Verse 22 says he had great possessions. He's young, which Matthew says in his parallel account, Matthew 19, 20. And he's some kind of ruler, which Luke says in Luke 18, 18. We don't know what kind of a ruler, probably of the local variety, perhaps in his own synagogue. And what else should we immediately notice? Well, some things really stand out, do they not? He's very courteous. When he greets Jesus, he ran up to him and he knelt before him and called him good teacher. He was deeply interested in religion. He ran up to Jesus and he couldn't wait for a private conversation with him. He was a man of high moral character. When reminded of the commandments, he responded, All these I have kept from my youth. Next week, we're going to go into some of this deeper. Fathers with daughters, you would welcome this guy to your house to see your daughter. That's the appearance, is it not? So keep that in mind. As we keep going. The question the rich young ruler is concerned about was, what must, here are the key words, I do to inherit eternal life? So right off the bat, we know that this quest, this question indicates that he was thinking in terms of Jewish works of righteousness. He wanted to do something to merit eternal life. We ask the same question So much, and you hear it all the time. Well, just tell me what I've got to do. And we can tell from the text that he was very concerned that there might be something more he needed to do than what he understood the Ten Commandments to be saying. He was bothered by what his heart was telling him. And yet, with all this, what is the first thing that Jesus does, what is the first thing that he does? He rebukes this man. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone, there in verse 18. And what Jesus is doing right here is initially directing the man's attention back to himself and who he is. The rich young ruler is polite. He's deferring and even flattering to Jesus for Jesus' reputation as a good teacher. But he doesn't understand the key most important element and that is who Jesus really is and therefore what reverence towards God is. So the first thing we see Jesus doing is pointing the man back to the character of God. He does it quickly. There's not exposition. There's not a lecture here. But he does it by a few words and by demonstrating it face to face. He knew that the rich young ruler was addressing him politely. But he also knew that he was addressing him with a superficial view of what goodness is. And he obviously didn't recognize how good Jesus was. And if this man had really believed with all his heart that Jesus was good, completely and perfectly in the highest sense of the term, he would have gladly obeyed the command he was about to hear. And he would have been empowered to do so because God would have brought him to himself as he recognized it gladly. But he was approaching Jesus, regarding Jesus as just a good human teacher, which is why Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. This is another one of the expressions that most of us have to chew on a while that Jesus gives us. We have to chew on it to recognize the full importance of what he's claiming. And it might sound something like this. Am I completely and perfectly good, even though you don't understand this? Young man, you're asking God in human flesh an important question. And I'm going to answer you, but in a way that you do not expect. The evaluation the young man gives of himself right after Jesus, what do you think about that? Let me read you something from the Apostle Paul, Philippians 3. Paul's telling the Philippian church, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. He goes on and on and on. Do you see the same flavor there? That pretty well described Paul's attitude before he became a Christian, which he now says he recognizes he counts as what? Loss. This young ruler is pretty sure of himself here. Pretty sure of himself. All these I have kept. It also reveals his shallowness as an understanding, even though he seems to be so concerned about inheriting eternal life that he wants to know what else he can do because his heart's troubling him. Even knowing he's kept all this stuff externally, he still knows. In Matthew's account, the young man asked the question fact what do I still lack and most evangelism today is really centered on man it's fairly obvious that mankind has an issue measuring up so the man centered message becomes like since you've sinned and missed out on God's great blessings you must do this and that and this way and that way and to get back what you've lost the true gospel is very, very different. It begins with God in His glory. It tells people that they have offended a holy God, who will by no means just pass by their sin. In Hebrews 4:13, we read, "And no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him whom we must give account." Without a knowledge of God a sinner does not know who whom he has offended who threatens him with destruction or who is able to save him In Romans 10:14 the first part of that verse we read how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard now, when Paul was speaking to the elders of the Ephesian church, he summed up his ministry with them as he was saying a tearful goodbye. In Acts 20, we read, Therefore I testify to you this day, I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole council. So one of the questions that we need to be asking, there's many, but one in particular is, do we evangelize by saying what we think someone may want to hear? I think the answer to that is way too often, yes, we do. We must proclaim God's character, especially his holiness. And second. In this passage we're looking at today, Jesus proclaims the law of God in verses 19 through the first part of verse 21. Jesus points the rich young ruler to the second table of the law. Now, what what is that? It's basically the second half. The first five commandments are what? Commandments towards God himself, relationship with God. But Jesus goes to the second half, which is about... Our relationships with other people. Number six, murder. Number seven, adultery. Number eight, stealing. Number nine, false witness. Then Jesus throws in defrauding. Don't be confused, that's really kind of an application of commandments number eight and nine, if you put it together. It's deceiving someone and taking something from them. So it, it includes a lot of things. And the last thing Jesus says, he, he goes back to the first commandment in the second table of the law, number five, about honor your father and mother. Matthew tells us that there was one more that sums up the whole second table, and that is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the whole second table. So when Jesus was asked to sum up the greatest commandments in the Gospels, what did he say? He summed up the first table of the law, you shall love the Lord your God with all your everything. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself, the second table. The man replies, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And then we know that he said, What do I still lack? Now, while there's no doubt this young man was a very moral person, he obviously didn't see the darkness of his own heart, even though he was bothered by um, what was going on there to make him say, What else? What else? what do I lack? He knew that there was something lacking. His main focus was external to the external acts. James 2, verse 10, James writes, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And we need to be reminded of the purposes of the law here. One of the purposes of the law is to convince us that we're sinners and that we need a Savior. In other words, to reveal sin to us as sin and point us to the Savior. Another purpose is to restrain evil. If you've got a lot of people that know the law it tends to be restrained as the Holy Spirit works through them and to provide a guideline for living for those who already belong to Christ. Jesus then answers the man's question by applying, guess what? What was left out? Which commandment? Five, six, seven, eight, and nine were covered. What about ten? Ten is, you shall not Covet. Jesus didn't list that one. There's a big debate over why. I think it's pretty obvious. He probably could have picked any of the commandments and left it out. The guy would have said the same thing, and he would have used some other example. But this one was especially pertinent, pertinent because of him and what his real idol was in his heart. So with mercy and grace, Jesus is going to point this out to him. What does he say? You lack one thing. You might want to say, you lack one really big, obvious thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. That doesn't mean you are supposed to go sell everything you have and give to the poor. let's put this in context today. For this man, this hit right where it hurt. We find out later that this man had great possessions in verse 22. In other words, he was extremely rich. He coveted things, property, possessions, wealth, money, who knows, influence, respect, all the stuff that goes with it. In other words, he desired his things and his wealth more than knowing God and, more, and being safe in Christ. He was blind to who he really was here. He wanted to do something himself. Can you imagine? We talk about this all the time. If I saw Jesus, I would have. How many people came face to face with Christ and had a a conversation with him and they walked away like this man did. Many. Many. These things that he desired, that he loved, that he is where his affections were, were more precious to him than God. Now, is that getting close to each of us? And it took Jesus applying the law of God personally to him to make him see that. Paul says it this way, and this is one of the shorter explanations in Romans 3. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. It's one of the ways God displays who he is. We see his character by what he says not to do and to do. In the law. So Jesus again is really lifting up the glory of God Almighty and going through the law, which is one of its purposes. So Jesus let the rich young ruler know by this simple use of the law what the Apostle John writes about in John, 1 John 3:4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Now, can you imagine this guy's heart, attitude, thoughts, if he put that together? I mean, lawlessness was an anathema to this person. He was a law keeper. And Jesus is pointing out, no, you're not. You can't be. And so the rich young ruler begins to realize the gravity of this situation. What was gnawing at him enough that he ran to ask Jesus this important question in the first place, he was finding out that Jesus' command made it clear that he was committed to his wealth and all the perks of that wealth more than anything else in his life, including the desire for eternal life. And that's why Jesus goes after him like this. One of the reasons all of us have this trouble in thinking, just like he did to some degree, is because we're just wired that way with the sin nature. But another reason is because we have this idea that we can be Christian and not be in Christ and belong to him that we can be a Christian and say it, but we're not accountable for anything. He bought us with his blood. If we recognize what God has done in the plan of redemption, we don't obey the law mainly by a sense of duty. Our heart changes where we want to serve him. We want to love him. Which helps when we do not want to love him and serve him because that still happens often. So Jesus has pointed out something here really pretty quickly that is amazing. Normal... Evangelical practice in evangelism is to swiftly run to the cross of Christ before the sinner even understands how great a sinner he or she is. The cross means nothing apart from the demands of the law. How can today's sinners who just don't really know about God and His holy law and demands upon them hardly at all anyway see themselves as condemned sinners? The idea of sin is strange because God's law is foreign to their understanding. In Romans 7, 7, Paul said, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. This usually, hopefully, happens all at the same time as Jesus is doing here. I mean, you think about this, well, he didn't say it exactly. He didn't explain it enough. He's there in person. <laughs> He's teaching. These people knew what he'd done, the miracles he'd done, the way he spoke to the Pharisees. They'd seen him. Here he is. He's God in the flesh. You go, well, his disciples didn't even get it yet. You're right. Not completely. It's almost too much for them to even imagine. We cried out for the Messiah for f- 500 years and more. More, more, more. He's here. And they missed it. I don't know about you, it sounds like me. Right here, miss it. It's because they weren't really looking for the right thing, partly. They were looking for benefits from God, for independence from the Romans, for us being the number one people on the face of the earth. You name it. You see how that motivation hurts us? So if the law then is needed as an instrument to bring perishing people to Christ, how have we more or less silenced the law to the point where many Christians are embarrassed to even mention it? It's always been hard. In our day, it's getting dangerous. By not wanting to proclaim the truth about who God is and how holy he is, we actually rip the gospel message in half so that the amazing grace and love of Jesus coming to us and living the perfect life demanded of our creator for all of his created beings, doesn't even register in people's minds and hearts. And if no one knows, God says the payment of each person must pay for their own sin is what? Death? Eternal condemnation? Or a word we never hear anymore, hell. Then there's no sense of need, and nobody recognizes that they are in a desperate situation. It's interesting how that works, though, is it not? Because we live in a culture that is getting so far away from God that anybody with a brain should be able to just look at what's happening and say, this is really wrong. There's still conscience in most people. God puts it there for a reason it just shows you how creative sinners are to call sin anything but sin or to not acknowledge a savior even with technological advances beyond anything mankind has ever known. That says something about God. It says something about how deceiving sin is. And we need to understand that as we show grace to people and figure out how to tell them the truth. If no one thinks they're sinful because they don't think anything is unlawful, does that describe our culture? Except for not treating your pets right not down on pets. But when dog and cats all of a sudden have more worth as living beings than humans do, we have an issue, a big one. So if people don't think they're sinful because they don't think anything is really unlawful, then they desperately need to know what the truth is about their condition before God. That knowledge should make Jesus' death as a payment for their sin really mean something. And we know that that is even warped, do we not? Even in ancient days, when I was in college, we used to go around on the campus of a major state university with 40,000 people, and we would use examples of people who were free and yeah, I just love everybody. And then we'd see somebody nearly take somebody's head off, and all of a sudden the law became real important when it involved them, and they were cheated, they were stolen from, they were abused. And that's across the board. It's still true. What Jesus told the rich young ruler to do was not a hoop to jump through to, to earn eternal life. That's not what's going on here. The man asked for that something else he could do to inherit eternal life. But Jesus' command took the man's question and shot it right back at his heart. So he would finally see the magnitude of the idol that he was in love with and truly wanted to serve more than ever knowing God. And if the young man had gladly obeyed Jesus and given up all he had, it would have been a sign that he had trusted Christ and therefore wanted him more than his stuff. But that's what Jesus is driving at here. third thing we see here is that Jesus proclaims the faith towards him as God's son. We see that in the last part of verse 21 and 22. Look at all of verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. That's the emphasis. You lack one thing. Jesus had revealed the one thing that was keeping this man from trusting Christ and having eternal life. The security of his wealth. For other people, it's other things, true? True. You want to know what idols are? An idol in your heart that's keeping you from knowing God is anything you love more than Him. Oops, the list just got pretty long. He says, come follow me. The invitation there is, is the one He gives to all people, all men and women everywhere, to know and have fellowship with the Almighty God who is your Creator, who sent His Son to die in your place. Why wouldn't you want to know and serve the God who loved you so much he sent his son to die for you? Everybody's into logical questions now. That's a logical question. What's the answer? People don't want to be accountable to God. They want to do what they want to do. We still want to with the sin nature that's still in us. Praise God when that's completely gone. Jesus was not making a case here for universal asceticism. You know what that is giving up all your wealth and living a life of conscious denial. That's a big academic way of saying you just rough it, you just whip your body, you just do all the stuff that Luther did in the monastery trying to beat sin out of himself. It doesn't work. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Neither was Jesus recommending poverty for all of his people because poverty does not deliver anybody from the love of money. In fact, if you're desperately poor, all you want is more money, usually. It's a universal condition. Most of the time in the Gospels, coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus mean exactly the same thing. In one place, Jesus says, come and follow me. In another place, he says, believe. Both are together in John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What do you do when you eat? You drink and you taste and swallow. He's using the word comes and believes the same way. We also see how following Christ is incorporated into the idea of coming and believing. It parallels the idea of abiding that we see all through the New Testament especially. Again, in John, he links so many of these things. John eight thirty one. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. Notice that for this young man, coming and following Jesus would be evidenced by his change of mind about Christ. In other words, we really see both repentance and faith being called for here. Repentance and faith are like two sides of the same coin. They're both found together, even if they're distinct. They are inevitably joined together in the new believer's heart. True faith always involves repentance, and repentance always has faith motivating it. We have a whole Sunday school series trying to explain one of the misuses of the repentance word to mean something else that's added as a work. It's worth studying. It's important. And this is why the, in the scriptures, evangelists sometimes only tell sinners to repent. You notice that? In some places, they only demand is that they believe, or sometimes both are mentioned. And we make grave errors when we either completely ignore that our minds and hearts need changing by regeneration and belief, or we think that repentance makes us somehow here we go, with the Marrow controversy somehow more eligible for believing. None of people who've gotten baptized because they thought it'd get them clean so they could start over to please God. That's not what baptism is. The rich young ruler left Jesus disheartened and sorrowful because he'd learned what? That trusting in Jesus implied he would need to give and entrust himself to Christ. He chose to keep his possessions now and give up eternal life forever. Which meant he could not bring himself to belong to another and not to himself. If you believe in Christ, you're in Him. If you truly believe in Christ, you belong to Him. If you truly know Christ, His blood has bought you. We are no longer our own. We are Christ Jesus, the Lord's. And that has so many implications. So please understand. This young ruler would not have merited or earned salvation if he'd sold his possessions and gave to the poor for that reason. You're like, oh, this is one more thing I need to do. He got it that he couldn't do that because he loved it more. Because nothing we can do can merit or earn our salvation. It's by grace that we're saved through faith. So in Scripture, the demand for following as a disciple is made where? Does it come in as a surprise after you find out that if you accept Jesus, all your prayers will be answered, your family will be great, your house will be paid off, they'll get your car, you can ask whatever you want? Oh, and now I have to start obeying him? You know, a year or two later? Is that the way it works? That's the way a lot of people think it works. We find out about what it means to follow Christ at the outset Jesus ever say that? Do you ever hear the narrow gate? It's at the beginning of the narrow way of eternal life. Following as his disciples is not an afterthought added for more, the more enthusiastic, crazy believers. Jesus, as he shows here, never gave people the idea that following him, taking him as who he is, is what that means. The Lord. Was optional. It's not optional. Practical acknowledgement of Jesus' lordship, yielding to his rule by following, is the very fiber of saving faith. Notice those words were careful fiber of saving faith. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains in him. Is that two different requirements or the same one played out? Answer B. 1 John two four. Whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Faith is not the nod of a head to a series of facts; it's following Christ. Next week, Lord willing, we'll finish Mark ten thirteen through thirty one as we consider how. Biblical assurance is talked about here. And evangelism that's dependent upon God, what that looks like. Hint, when this man left, this might not be a good thing to throw out for a week. When this man left, did Jesus run after him to get him to pray a prayer? Just do this, it'll be okay. Okay. He let him go. and In our passage, it says he loved him. Something to chew on that you might not want to chew on. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the multiple resources we have in your word that give us accounts of Jesus' life on this earth. We thank you for the way you open our eyes through your word by the power and attendance of your spirit to see you more clearly for who you really are, and we pray that you would continue to do that. We know that one of the most um, obvious Things that happens in us when you work like that is humility before you and before one another. Oh, God, our hearts are heavy just because of what Kelly's going through and what others are going through. Uh, And yet we see her clinging to you, Scripture. We pray for your mercy upon her life. And we pray that James would get there safely and that their being together would give so much glory and honor to you that people would be amazed by their deeper understanding of who you are and why they love you and serve you. We thank you for the way you work in our lives. And we pray for the Father's here, that you'd equip them with your power, your assurance, your understanding, to be courageous, to know what to stand on in the world we live, and what what to work out some other way, and how to stand in your grace and your peace, and be peacemakers amongst so much adversity. Building us what you desire to honor your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? To the king of all ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.